Today's podcaster's survival tip is the following. It's okay for your listeners to just stay listeners. You don't need to convert them into anything else. I know, hard to believe. G'day legends, Josh here. This is the podcaster's survival guide. You can listen to the show, share the show, and even donate to the show if you like it or love it over at deadsetpodcasting.com. So today's episode is a rebroadcast of a 2018 interview that I did with Chris Curran, which was in the original series of the Podcaster Survival Guide. So I went through and I picked out the episodes that I still think hold up. And honestly, out of all the interviews that may have some technical applicability to your podcast to make it sound better or operate better, this is the episode. We talk about two fundamentals today of audio engineering for podcasting. The first being audio levels and how important Chris feels that they are to a pleasurable listening experience and also how you achieve that through things like compression. We also talk about a really unique compression process that Chris implements and I'm assuming he probably still does given his history in the music business. He kind of came to podcasting with a pretty advanced set of technical skills. So he talks about a three-pass compression process, which I'm actually, having re-listened to this, I'm going to go back and start trying myself probably over the next month to see if I can get some of the great results that Chris does. So one thing about today that I didn't actually remember, this is a part one of a two-part episode, but I'm going to apologize to Chris here because I'm not sure. Because I think this was the very last episode of the original series of the podcaster's survival guide. I'm actually not sure if I ever put out part two which right at the end, I mentioned what it's going to be. It's kind of like a myth-busting session. So if I can find that audio, I'm going to put that out for sure because I was thinking, oh, that's a pretty big cliffhanger that you left at the end of today's episode, Josh. I hope that there's a part two. So sorry to Chris if I never did put that out. I'm not sure. I can't remember. So once again, this is part one. That's enough housekeeping for me. And just so you know, I basically have left these episodes completely untouched except I would have chopped off the original intro. So they sound like me from three years ago, where I thought I was already okay at this thing, but I've worked out that, yeah, I still had a lot to learn and I still do. So it won't sound exactly like this. And my interview skills were still a little rusty back then, a little shaky. But yeah, it's a great interview and Chris is such a great person. It was really fun for me to go back and listen to this because he brought out more of a happy side of me, which back then I used to be a little gruff to be honest. I was really an up person on a podcast. I was always super serious all the time, which is not me, if you know me now. Okay, guys. So this is Chris Curran, podcast engineering show. Let's do this thing. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Chris Curran who is the head engineer and founder of Fractal Recording. He also produces the podcast Engineering School. And it's probably the best sounding show in our whole genre. So that's a credit to him and his skills. And today I've put together a little group of questions for Chris that tread the line between basic audio engineering for podcasting and slightly more advanced stuff. So we don't bore him to tears having to talk about it. But Chris, is there anything that is important for people to know that I've missed there and 
I mean, I could go on for an hour about your history in music. <laughs> we could go into the back catalogue because I think at one point you mentioned you had something to do with a Jeff Buckley record. Maybe I'm just imagining that or you worked with someone who did. So that's probably an hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I kind of worked on that record very peripherally. But yeah, he was in the studio I worked at wow. uh, when they were overdubbing and mixing his record, Grace. That's an all-time classic, that one. So we'll probably stay away from that so we don't bore everybody to tears once again. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we'll just jump straight into the questions because we've got the expert here. Sure. What were the skills from the music industry that you first thought would be appropriate for podcasting and what was it that you were hearing that was missing because I know you said that before I was hearing engineering skills that were missing but I don't think I've ever heard you talk about exactly what you thought those were when you first came into podcasting yeah so as a podcast listener one of the things that really kind of doesn't sit well with me is when the the levels of of different people's voices are not really equal to each other so like someone someone's voice is loud the other one's voice is soft and that makes for a listening experience that is not the best especially if you're listening in a place where there's a lot of background noise like if you're driving down the road in your car and there's a lot of car noise you know from the road road noise and you're trying to listen to a podcast and one person's voice is really loud and the other person's is really soft then you keep having to adjust your volume and and sometimes when the loud person talks it it's really loud and it hurts your ears so that that's violating the basic tenet of audio engineering which is to provide a good listening experience to the listener i mean that's the only reason we're talking about audio engineering at all is the experience it provides the listener so that's you know in general that is what's missing in a lot of podcasts they don't understand that basic principle and then so they don't know how to balance the voices properly and then of course if you talk about balancing you got to take a step back and and you know understand how to record it properly as well so that's probably the main thing that uh that i noticed from the beginning that podcasters don't get usually you're absolutely right and there's two things it's 2018 now i was listening to a friend's new show recently and it's the first show in a long time I've heard that had drastically different levels. It He sounded like he was stuck in a bathroom and his, his guests <laughs> sounded like they were stuck in a bathroom, inside a bathroom, inside a bathroom. <laughs> and it's the first show because the standard of audio is so high now that you just can't get away with a poor audio experience across a whole episode. Obviously, there might be sound effects and tricks of space that you're doing in the stereo field maybe for having different voices seem like they're different distances away in volumes but yeah it's not very listenable in 2018 and the other point was and I think why Chris knew as an engineer that there was an issue I used to mix my first 20 podcast episodes and I thought they sounded great in my headphones and it wasn't until a friend said he couldn't hear half of it when he was driving along the highway that I, that I actually knew, I didn't even know I had a level problem until I had a level problem. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's right. how, how do you educate people around that? Because when we talk about it, make sure the voices are the same volume. It just sounds so simple, but it's clearly not a simple process to execute. So what tips or starting point do you have when it comes to educating people around 
how to actually get their levels to the same level. Yeah. So this is what I mean by you kind of have to step back into the fundamentals of audio. And there's a there's way too much that we could talk about. You know, we don't have time to talk about it today. But, you know, there are tools these days that you can use to basically level a voice. So this the whole new loudness standards. It's not that new, actually. You know, when you talk about loudness standards, usually you're talking about the finished episode it has to be a certain level. But you can also, while you're mixing an episode, you can set each voice to the same loudness level on your own. And that kind of ensures that they're pretty much very close in volume. And that's actually what the service called Auphonic can do. And that's why people use Auphonic is because you can tell Auphonic, hey, put each voice at minus 23 luffs and then you know they'll be very close in volume now it doesn't take it doesn't take into consideration the the tone of the voice or the you know if someone is is really close to the mic and then a different person is like far away from the mic with all kinds of room noise and, and background noise so there's there's so many variables that go into it but you can use automated systems like that like Alphonic to to level the voices, you know, you can go deeper than that in terms of EQ, like every voice sounds different and every voice has different frequencies in it. And some people have a lot more bass in their voice and fullness and some people don't. So, you know, it's hard to match the volume of two voices when they're so different. Like if one person has a big bassy voice and another person has a real wimpy, squeaky, kind of a harsh voice. How do you balance those two voices? It's actually not easy. I mean, I produce podcasts for a living and I have clients and when I'm producing their episodes, it's something I do every day is listen to two voices and say, well, you know, do I have to bring this one up or bring this one down so that they match? I mean, it's something I actively do every day. So it's actually not easy when when you start considering the different frequencies and, and, and what's going on. So it's... Yeah, it, it, it sounds easy, but like I, that's why I mentioned Alphonic first, because using that, you can use an automated system to get really close. I've got the Alphonic desktop app, which does... I've actually started using less of the... I don't think I use the high-pass filter, and I don't use the noise reduction anymore. I do it again when, when I take the file back into Audacity or Logic. I use RX6 vocal or dialogue denoise i find that that's a slightly more natural noise reduction and the alphonic one's been around for several years and when it first came out the noise reduction was world class but i think that some of those better plugins are now better but it's kind of a stopgap solution to what chris is talking about and that's from my understanding and chris will be able to correct me if i'm wrong when you're setting a luff standard you're basically setting an average in like the peaks between the peaks from what i understand and it's basically almost averaging an internal peak between the peaks i'm not sure how to really explain it i know there's a great episode from ray ortega but yeah that still doesn't that still doesn't take away from the fact that if even if people within your door or you've outputted to negative 16 they had the same average luffs if you have a very powerful heavily compressed voice that has lots of bass in certain environments you still can perceive it to be louder than someone has a wimpy, thinner voice, even if you 
were to actually see how loud they actually are, <laughs> they might be the same, but it doesn't come across that way to the human brain. So am I way, way off base there or... No, you're right on. Compression is another, you know, is another process that I use on every single voice that I mix in podcasts. And compression is important because some people, some people get really close to the mic when they're speaking and they speak at about the same volume the whole time. And for those people, it's a nice experience. If you listen to their raw recording, you can hear them because, and it's kind of how I, my microphone technique, right? I'm right on the mic when I'm talking and I'm just, you know, I kind of always talk the same volume. Sometimes I'll just say so my audience knows Chris is being 100% honest there. He's not fixing that in post <laughs> or I'm not in this case. You actually do speak very consistently. I'm really cognizant of microphone technique because it makes a big difference. And you know, I do at times get quiet, like and tra- trail off a sentence like this, a trail off a sentence like this. <laughs> like, it, you know, you get a little quieter, but I'm actually using a compressor in my signal chain before it's recorded. So that helps with that. But yeah, so the person who has good microphone technique, who speaks well, who speaks close to the mic at about the same volume the whole time, that's no problem. But then you have people who they lean back two feet from the mic and then they start whispering and they turn their head and they're looking out the window and it's like, then they get right on the mic and like scream into the mic. So what that, what that's called is dynamic range. That means there's some parts where they're really, really soft and there's other parts where they're really, really loud. Those kinds of voices, those people who do it that way, that is very difficult to handle in post-production because you can, you can add compression to even it out. But there are side effects to compression, like adding more noise when, you know, the, you bring the noise floor up when you compress things. So you can't, you can compress it to some extent, but you can't compress it too much or it brings up the room noise and then it sounds like they're in a, you know, a hallway. So it's really, really tricky. There are so many <laughs> things that affect the sound and, and, and most people don't know any of it, especially podcasters. They, they don't know anything. They just think, Ooh, let me get a blue Yeti and put it on a table and do a podcast. <laughs> I've never actually had that experience, but from what I understand, Chris gets that as an after product quite regularly from his clients. That's something that's subpar just with the compression thing. And another reason why I think that this idea of levels is so important. One thing that Orphonic can do is it can get you in the range of having a leveled sound through, I'm assuming, some kind of normalization and compression algorithm that's getting it there. It can do that without also adding so much multiband that you give people a headache because there's certain podcasts out there that obviously have level problems and they fix it all in post by compressing the snot out of everybody that's on the show. (laughs) So if it's 70 minutes long, having that beating in your ears for that amount of time, I mean, I listen to podcasts all day, every day when I'm not at work. But even for me, I find it fatiguing to have too much compression in a show when if they had have just taken a little bit more time with their levels, they could have used something closer to the raw track and not had to compress it so much. It's not all that enjoyable an experience when something's overcompressed. So do you have any feelings on overcompression, Chris? I'm sure that as an expert, you probably have many. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. I 100% agree with what you said. And that that's, you know, so what a lot of people do is they'll just record their audio and, you know, they might use Auphonic or maybe not. But then at the last step, 
what they'll do is they'll do it's it, and it's considered a mastering step, which is in music production. It's the very last step where the mastering engineer will literally tweak, slightly tweak the EQ and the compression and the limiting to get it just right before it goes out on CD or actually there are no CDs anymore. So before, before it gets squashed down to a crappy sounding MP3 and put on iTunes or something. So the mastering is the final step. And, and there are like, for instance, in, I think probably every DAW software, there's like a plugin or or a process called like, Ooh, mastering or finalizing. And what it does is it just, like you said, it just crushes everything and really limits it hard and you know it it does actually help in terms of you know leveling out the sound so making sure that one person is not louder than the other but at the same time it really crushes it and it makes it unnatural so there there's definitely you can overcompress and and again that's sort of like an amateur's way of compensating for producing it badly is, Oh, let me fix it in the last step. I'll just crush everything and then it's okay. So, and look, and, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to come off like I'm some high and mighty engineer. Like, I, I mean, I have a lot of experience. That's fine. And I understand that most people doing podcasts don't have that experience and it's okay. You can, you can make those mistakes. It's actually not the end of the world, but at the same time, when, when we're going to start splitting hairs and 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 talking shop here we got to really call it like it is and tell it how it is right yeah absolutely and just for any other musicians when chris said it was a mastering step we all know as musicians that have made albums for anyone out there including myself mastering normally makes whatever it is you have sound better generally it's the goal it's the thing that makes a recording sound like it's sitting in front of the speakers it kind of makes a recording come alive whereas a lot of this multi-band sausage compression that podcasters do at the last step in my opinion although it might help a tiny bit with the volume problems sometimes makes things sound worse and almost unlistenable particularly if you have a very long show so yeah i just know there's probably some musicians out there that are going wait a sec mastering is meant to be a great thing it's what we're all paying a thousand dollars a song for chris (laughs) so Mm. yeah let's hope that it's good yeah, so I I end up using quite a bit of compression, but I do it in stages and I do it gently. So on each person's voice, I'll use one compressor or a lot of times two compressors. But again, they're both gentle and they're both a little different in terms of attack and release times and all that stuff. And and they're each if I'm using two compressors on a person's voice, each compressor is doing a slightly different thing as well. And then on top of that, in my mastering step, I do add I do use multi-band compression. So you can think of it that each person's voice that I produce is compressed three times. But you you know, you, if you do it gently each time and, and for a reason, for a specific reason, that's when you can end up with an episode that is leveled out nicely and has good compression on it, but it's not over compressed. I guess what Chris is saying is for anyone who's wondering, why would you do three lots as opposed to one? It's kind of like if you're making a recipe, you wouldn't just dump, you know, if you're making bread or whatever, you wouldn't just dump what you thought was a massive amount of salt in right at the end you'd kind of put it in in stages and try and get it perfect or with any other thing that you're creating. And I think that it's, I can't let you get away with just saying that you use three without telling us how that staging works, Chris, because I'm sure there's a methodology to, I compress for this reason first and this reason second. 
and I add the multiband for this reason. So can you take us through your mindset on why you're doing the three lots? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I love your analogy to adding salt. I mean, that's that's a perfect analogy. I've never heard that before. That is so correct. It's like you can add a little bit here, add a little bit more. Does it need a little more? And then then you might wait like 10 minutes and then then taste it again and say, oh, does it need a little more? Yeah, a little bit more and then put it in. Normally, the first compressor I use is is on the SSL channel strip plug-in from Waves, either the SSL E or the G channel. I prefer the E channel, but on my new iMac Pro, I have the G channel because I'm still sort of straddling two production machines and I don't have all my plugins on my new machine yet, which is kind of a bummer because I, you know, you know me, I love, I love it. Right. So on the SSL channel strip, yeah, they have a compressor and I'll, that the first, that's the first compressor and it'll be sort of gentle, like it maybe three to one ratio and maybe at most three to six dB of compression, although six dB would be a lot, maybe, maybe up to three dB of compression, just so it's hitting it a little bit, just taming the high peaks, right? When someone gets loud, it'll just compress it down a bit. And normally, well, my attack time on that one can, can differ, but normally either my attack time is a very fast attack, like one or two milliseconds or something around 30 milliseconds because 30 milliseconds will actually let the transient through before compressing it. So, but if someone is, if someone's transients are harsh, like if, if just the, the tip of every word is like, it's just poking you in the face and, and it, you know, like then you put the attack on one or two milliseconds and it'll catch those transients and squash them down. Release time normally is around 200 milliseconds because that's sort of like an in-between amount of release. So it's, it's just nice enough, you know, release time. Release time sort of, in my mind, determines how close the the voice is. Like if it's, like if it's a really fast release, like 20 milliseconds or 60 milliseconds, it, it, it makes the voice seem closer to you. But if you put it on like one, like 500 milliseconds or even a thousand milliseconds, which is one second, uh, with a longer release time, it sort of pushes the voice back into the speakers a little. It makes it a little further away from you. So the release time you can mess with and just, it brings it closer and further. Uh, it does other things too, but that's, perceptually that's one of the things that it does so that's the first compressor on the ssl second one is is again gentle but normally it's more for tone so i normally use the the cla 2a from waves or the um the 1176 from waves so those are two vintage compressors and again i don't i don't compress it a lot and and even with like the LA-2A, it doesn't even have, you can't choose attack and release or anything. It's just input and output. And then you see a gain reduction meter so you can tell how much you're squashing it. But that, but again, very little, maybe one to three dB of compression when someone gets loud, just that'll go a long way. The 1176 does have a lot of, you know, controls in terms of attack and release and, and, and ratio. So yeah, I use either one or one or one of them or the other, and that's my second compressor in the chain. And then, like I said, for mastering, it's it's I, I mainly use Ozone Eight for my mastering, and I actually put the the Ozone Eight multi band compressor on the stereo mix in my in Reaper. 
So I actually master it as I'm mixing it. And I normally I wouldn't do both mixing and mastering in the same step, but it's podcasting. And I, you know, over time I kind of get to know the settings and it's, I, it's just more for productivity. So when I use a multiband compressor, again, maybe not more than two or three DB of compression on any one of, on any one of the bands. And I do some other funky stuff with the multiband compressor, but it's probably too much to go into right now. So just for anyone who's wondering why there's a dB reduction on each step, just for anyone who's thinking, this is all fantastic, guys, but it'd be nice if you actually explain what a compressor is doing. In theory, and Chris, once again, feel free to call me on this if this isn't correct, but essentially, if you've got a waveform and there's some really quiet bits and some really loud bits within normal human speech, if you were just to leave those within the recording and just put it out, there would be certain parts that would seem incredibly loud compared to everything else and some parts that you would be basically inaudible. So the first thing a compressor is doing is essentially reducing those highs, the highest points, and basically crushing what's called the dynamic range a little bit so everything perceived by the human ear is within a certain range. But then basically what you've also done is almost turned it down a little bit to start with. So the final stage of a compressor in most cases is also to lift the overall crushed signal back up again a little bit in volume. So is that in the ballpark of what a compressor is doing essentially? Because otherwise it sounds like every time you're turning it down and down and down and down (laughs) to the point where there might not be any actual signal left. Is there anything else you can add to that to make it make sense to people? Yeah, so your explanation was good, and yes, that's what you do. You compress down the loud parts, you you kind of push it down, and then and the last step, you bring up the entire volume of the signal. So yeah, so each step, yeah, I'm I'm compressing it, but I'm also bringing up. Uh, it's called usually called makeup gain. Yeah. So it's a little makeup gain. You you make up for the compression that you did by a little makeup gain, and so yeah, that's that's part of that's an important part of compression for sure. Yeah, and just before we move on, I know we've probably talked compression to death. The makeup gain step <laughs> f- for me was the difference. Once I discovered how to reapply a little bit of that compensation to my overall reduction of the, the signal, that was what made compression a bit of a game changer for me. Because to begin with, I was using presets and I didn't really understand why it sounded like my track had just basically disappeared off the face of the earth. It's because I wasn't actually compensating for that bit of reduction. Right. So anyone out there that's wondering, is compression right for me? Why does it never sound great when I do it? It might be because you've got your makeup gain set at the wrong level or you're not actually using it at all. Because I know a lot, like take the Apple plugins, there's a setting on there that I use called gentle and it's the gentlest, (laughs) surprisingly, (laughs) gentlest compression that I've found is just the stock Apple one that comes with Logic and you can use it in Audacity as well. And the preset on Gentle is zero makeup gain. So you basically, if you're just like it comes out of Orphonic at, you know, negative, was it minus 1.5 or whatever it masters to, and then you apply that Gentle setting, it knocks you down literally, Chris, to like negative 10 on the meter or negative 12 which just sounds, I mean, particularly if you're mixing in a lot of music, which I do, 
that's all mastered almost to zero. <laughs> so, you know, right. yeah, it means that I've got to basically then lift the track back up or crush the music down so it doesn't have as much life to it. And I don't really like volume reducing music all that much. I'd rather try and get my vocal track up to a decent level to match it. And right. yeah, as soon as I started adding the makeup gain, it was just a game changer. So, I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll get off compression. Chris has probably got a masterclass worth of compression discussions <laughs> like <laughs> sprinkled amongst all of his podcast engineering school episodes. So I wanted to do, I've actually got a call with Dave Jackson of all people in about half an hour, Chris. So nice. I wanted to do just a little miss and truth section with an actual expert here. So I'm just going to fire these off and you can say as much or as little about each one as you like. 